Amen. I want to welcome you here this morning. My name is Bert Daniel, and I serve as the lead pastor here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. And uh, especially want to welcome all our fathers today. Uh, we are grateful for you, and we are glad that you are here with us this morning. As we recognize Father's Day, we also want to praise God for the gift of new life. So on Mother's Day, we took time to praise God for several new babies and to pray for those babies and their parents. And we have the opportunity to do the same this morning. So the families that will be coming in just a moment uh, desire to give thanks to the Lord for their children and also uh, to dedicate their children to the Lord and dedicate themselves to raising their children to know and love the Lord. So parents uh, that are involved in the uh, baby dedication this morning, if you'll come forward at this time. We had uh, just about, I think, the same number of families for Mother's Day as well, and uh, so the Lord's been really good to our church, and uh, just thankful for how He continues to bless our congregation with new life. I'm going to uh, introduce you to each of these families and, uh, and to their children, and so we'll start down here uh, at the end, my right, your left, and uh, we'll start with Chase and Priscilla Brannon, and they are bringing Emery Russell, and uh, Opal is with them as well. And then uh, we have Jonathan and Taylor Bush, and they are bringing Henry Lawrence. And then we have Daniel and Katie Caro, and they are bringing Rylan. Then we have Joshua and Ruth Hunt, and they are bringing both uh, Zoe and Owen. Then we have right here in front of me, uh, Tyler and Beth James, and they are bringing Grady, and uh, Grady's uh, brother also is with them, uh, Emery. Then we have Jake and Emily Lewis, and they're bringing Hattie James and Lydia Ruth. And then we have Luke and Amber Martin, and uh, they are bringing Emerson. And we have Ricky and Hannah Wiebe, and they are bringing Richard Ray Wiebe IV, and he goes by Cade, and uh, also with them is Peyton. And then we have Mark and Alex Willis, and uh, are they here? No, they're not. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, we have David and Mary Wong, and uh, they are bringing Samuel David and uh, Samuel's uh, sister Faith and brother Jackson are with them as well. So uh, we praise God for all these families and for their new children. Let's, let's thank the Lord uh, for them. Amen. Well, as parents, we not only have a responsibility to provide for our children physically, we also are commanded by the Lord to teach them the Scriptures, and we are to pray and work to see that they will come to faith in Christ. And so, parents, I want to commend you uh, for your desire to raise your children to know and love the Lord. Uh, at this time, uh, our parents that are up here this morning will commit themselves uh, to love and teach and train their children uh, to know the Lord. And then we as a church will have an opportunity to, make, uh, to commit ourselves uh, to them as well. So, uh, in your bulletin this morning, you should find an insert, and in that insert are some vows, 
And you can take that out at this time and uh, follow along. Parents, I am going to ask you a series of questions, and then you can respond to each by voicing your commitment. Parents, will you commit to trust God's promises made to you and to your children in His Word? Will you commit to discipline your children and show them grace? Will you commit to teach God's Word to them and live out the gospel in your home? Will you commit to pray for them and teach them to pray? Will you commit to partner with this church community, seek their help and accountability, and lead your children to do the same? Will you commit to seek God and to live so that the gospel is at the center of the way you live and parent your children? Amen. And now at this time, if you are a member of Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, or if you are a family member of one of these children and you're a Christian, you're a disciple of Jesus, I ask you to stand. Crawford Avenue family, will you commit to pray for these children that they will grow to love Jesus and trust in Him? Will you commit to teach them the gospel through both your words and your example? Will you commit to partner with these parents, holding them accountable and confronting their sin? Will you commit to pray for them and encourage them as they face the trials of parenting? Will you commit to seek God and apply the gospel in the way you live before these children? Let's respond together. With joy and thanksgiving as Christ's church, with God's help, we promise to love, encourage, and support you as you follow Christ and train your children in the faith. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we praise You that You have instructed us to call You Father. You have revealed Yourself to us as Father through faith in Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through faith in Your Son, we are truly the children of God. We praise You that as Father, You are committed to providing for us and loving us, to protecting us and instructing us, to training us and disciplining us, to encouraging us. Father, we pray for each father that is here this morning that they would be a reflection of You, our Heavenly Father. We know, Lord, that the role of a father in each of our lives is so crucial. And so, Lord, we rejoice with those who have enjoyed the blessing of an imperfect but faithful and loving father. And, Lord, we take a moment as well to grieve with those who have either lost a father due to death or have been wounded by the absence or unfaithfulness of a father. We pray ultimately, Lord, that each of us would know the blessing of true fatherhood as we daily cry out to You, Abba, Father, and we rest in Your love and care. Lord, we do praise You for each of these families. We thank You for all of these children. And Lord, we pray for these parents. We pray that they would seek You first in all things. We pray that their love for You would mark their lives and their homes. We pray, Lord, that their homes would be a place where Your Word is read and known and loved and honored. 
We pray, Lord, that through the loving care of these parents and through the life-giving power of Your Word, that each of these children would come to know You, to love You, and that they would walk closely with You all the days of their lives. Father, we thank You for Your grace and mercy. We praise You for calling us into Your family, and we thank You for the blessing of family. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Parents, at this time you may be seated, and as they are being seated, uh, we have some gifts that uh, some of the elders are going to be uh, giving to them as they uh, make their way to their seats. And uh, the gifts are, uh, one, a book, uh, Things to Pray for Your Kids, uh, and then also uh, the Biggest Story Bible Storybook. And so both of these uh, resources will hopefully be an encouragement to you as you disciple your children. Amen. God the Father made us a part of his family, not by ignoring sin, but by justly canceling our sin through the cross of his son, the Lord Jesus. At the cross, Christ paid the penalty for our sin so that all who trust in him might find pardon and true freedom. Hear this truth from Hebrews 9, 26 through 28. Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. When Christ returns, we will be secure, for the blood of Jesus will never lose its power. Please stand as we sing. The blood that Jesus shed for me
Kingdom Church. Please be seated. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We are currently in a series in Deuteronomy chapter 6 entitled, A Model for Discipleship. Instruct, devote, remember. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, and we are going to continue on in the chapter this morning uh, and looking at verses 10 through 19. And so I'm going to read for us here in just a moment Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. If uh, you don't have your Bible with you this morning, you should find a black Bible somewhere around you, and uh, you'll find our passage. Page number's not up there, but it's in there. It's on Deuteronomy chapter (laughs) 6, verses 1 through 19. Does anybody have the page number in the black Bible? 151. So you'll find it on page 151, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, And that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord promised. Amen. 
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word is for our good. Your commandments are for our good. Lord, we pray even this morning that as we turn to your word now, that we would delight in your word, that we would trust in the goodness of your word, and that we would be a people devoted to you with all that we are. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. In our first sermon in this series, we talked about the importance of instruction and teaching in the life of a disciple. So instruction and teaching are absolutely critical for a disciple to mature in their faith. However, instruction and teaching are only valuable in the disciple's life if that instruction and teaching leads to greater devotion to God and greater love for God. It's been said that insight is cheap. Insight is cheap. Insight is knowledge. And here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, we love to get into the Scriptures and to know them and to understand them, to gain insight into the Scriptures, to understand how they relate to one another, different parts of the Bible relate to one another, and how it all fits together. And that's wonderful. Instruction and teaching are vital for a disciple to mature in the faith. And at the same time, insight is cheap if it only leads to more information and more knowledge, but does not result in a greater love for God and a greater devotion to God. So disciples of Jesus should not only be known for their knowledge of the Scriptures, But they should be known for their devotion to God. Information should result in transformation. Or we could say it this way, insightful instruction should result in wholehearted devotion. Because we all know that it is one thing to know someone, it is another thing to be devoted to them. Last week, John Ross Uh, preached from the book of Ruth. And Ruth is an example of devotion. You remember Naomi is married, and she has two sons, and her two sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And tragically, Naomi's husband dies. But then tragedy upon tragedy, not only does her husband die, but her two sons die. And so now all that is left is Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And so Naomi, in loving her two daughters-in-law, turns to them and says, Listen, you should go back to your families. You should go back to your mother's home. I cannot provide for you. And Orpah, her one daughter-in-law, accepts her counsel. But Ruth, her other daughter-in-law, refuses it. In fact, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 14, we read that Ruth clung to Naomi. And then Ruth says, Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Webster's Dictionary defines devotion as that fact or state of being ardently dedicated and loyal. Ruth was devoted to Naomi. 
You see, Orpah and Ruth knew all, just about all there was to know about Naomi. They had both been married to Naomi's sons for at least 10 years. They both knew Naomi's strengths and weaknesses. They had both walked with Naomi through the hardship of a famine and through the grief and loss of a husband and two sons. Both of them knew about all there was to know about Naomi, but only Ruth was devoted to Naomi. You see, knowledge does not always lead to devotion. And so in our own lives, as Christian disciples, we must be diligent to ensure that our knowledge of God and our knowledge of His Word results in greater love for God and greater devotion to God. And that's what we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. As we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the Shema, which we find in chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. I mentioned this last week, but the Shema is one of the most important passages of Scripture in all of the Old Testament. In fact, even today, observant Jews will repeat or recite the Shema at least two times each day. And so we're going to focus our attention on the Shema, and we're going to look at it in two parts. And this is our outline for this morning, okay? So we're going to look at it in two parts. One one God, which we'll see in chapter 6, verse 4, and then one love, which we'll see in chapter 6, verse 5. So those are our two points. One God and one love. So let's turn there. Chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, look there in the passage, and we read these words. This is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, you might be wondering, well, why, is, why are these two verses referred to as the Shema? Well, it's because the first Hebrew word in chapter 6, verse 4 is Shema, which translated means hear. So we read there in chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, or Shema, O Israel. And the words that follow are absolutely critical to understanding the God of the Bible. Actually, in Hebrew, the words that follow are only four words. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh alone. Now, our God in Hebrew is actually just one word, so it's four words. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh alone alone. Now, just a few comments on these four words. You might know that in our English translations, if you see the word Lord in small caps, it is a translation of the personal name of God, the personal name of the God of Israel. His name is Yahweh. That is His name in Hebrew. And God revealed His personal name to Moses at the burning bush. So Moses, when he was called to confront Pharaoh in Egypt, Moses says to the Lord, if the people ask me, what is your name, what shall I say to them? And God said, Yahweh, tell them that Yahweh sent you. Now, Yahweh is his name in Hebrew, but if you actually translate Yahweh from the Hebrew into English, the word or the name means I am who I am. In other words, when God says, I am who I am, He is saying that He is absolute being. He has no beginning. He has no end. 
He is all-sufficient. He is absolutely independent of anyone or anything. He defines ultimate reality. I am who I am. And this is the personal name of the God of Israel. His name is not Baal. His name is not Amon-Re. His name is not Marduk. His name is Yahweh. Like my name is Bert, or your name might be Susie or Peter. The name of the God of Israel is Yahweh. And that name appears some 6,800 times in the Old Testament. Notice also, we read here, Yahweh, our God. You see, the other nations, they had their gods, but Yahweh is Israel's God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, just this one chapter alone, Yahweh, the name of God, is used 22 times. And of those 22 times, 14 of those 22 times, the name Yahweh is followed with a description like Yahweh your God, or Yahweh our God, or Yahweh the God of our fathers. And each of these phrases defines Yahweh and identifies Yahweh as the God of Israel. So, for example, the Canaanites had Baal. The Egyptians had Amon-Re. The Babylonians had Marduk. But Yahweh is Israel's God. Notice also, as we read here, Yahweh our God. Then we read Yahweh alone. Or it could be translated Yahweh one. Now this was a radical affirmation in Moses' day. All the other nations were polytheistic. That means they worshipped many gods. So you think about the fact that they're coming out of Egypt. They were in Egypt in slavery for some 400 years, and the Egyptians worshipped many gods. And they are about to go into Canaan. And the Canaanites in the Promised Land, they worshipped many gods. So yes, the Canaanites had Baal, but Baal was just one god among many gods. The Egyptians had Amon-Re, but he was just one god among many gods. The Babylonians had Marduk, but he was just one god among many gods. But in stark contrast, Yahweh is the God of Israel, and He is one, and He alone is God. This declaration of monotheism, that there is one God, has been described as, quote, the most critical doctrinal statement in all of Judaism. And as, quote, the most distinct feature of Old Testament religion. And notice that this is not merely a a declaration of monotheism, but more specifically, it is a declaration of Yahwehism. In other words, it is true that there is one God and only one God, but this one God is not just any God. This one God is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, this exclusive claim set Israel apart from her neighbors. Much like the exclusive claims of Christianity set us as Christians today apart from our society. In Moses' day, God's people declared, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, 
the Lord is one. And as Christians today, we declare, along with the Apostle Paul from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So here we see in the Shema that there is one God. But then secondly, we see one love. Look there in verse 5. Moses goes on to write, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then skip down. Now, we have looked at verses 4 through 9 last week or a couple of weeks ago. We've also looked at verses 10 through 12, uh, so we're going to skip those verses, but go down uh, to verse 13, and we read here. It picks up on the same theme. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised." Now, going back to the Shema, we're going to pick up on these verses later in chapter 6, but going back to Shema, if you look at verse 4 and 5, there is no particle between those two verses. So there's, there's no word like therefore, or as a result, or consequently. However, there is an undeniable logical connection between verse 4 and verse 5, and it goes something like this. Because Yahweh is God, and Yahweh alone is God, therefore you shall love Him and Him alone. You shall not love any other God, and you shall love Him with all that you are. Or it could be stated this way. There is one God, and therefore He is to be the object of all your love, in all your affection, in all your devotion. Or as I have stated it in our outline this morning, there is one God, and so we are to have one great love for this one great God. Now, let's examine, as we look at our text, let's examine this call to love God more closely, and we will see that our love for God according to what we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, is to be a total love, it is to be a singular love, and it is to be a practical love. Notice that our love for God is to be a total love. You see there in verse 5 the threefold use of the word all. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In other words, our love for God is to be whole. It is to be complete. It is to be undivided. It is to be total. 
There should be no part of our being which is reserved for a rival allegiance. So, when God calls His people to love Him, it's not like Baal gets a fourth of their love, and Amon Re gets a fourth of their love, and Marduk gets a fourth of their love, and then Yahweh gets a fourth of their love. See, that's the way the nations viewed their gods. But no, He is one God, and therefore He is to receive all their love. The logic of the Shema is actually the same logic of marriage. Each man is to have one wife, and each woman is to have one husband. And therefore, each husband and each wife is to love their one spouse and no other, and they are to love them and be devoted to them with all that they are. So we see that there's one God and our love and devotion is to be reserved for Him. In other words, what, what, what Moses is saying here is that we are to love God with our whole self. Do you see how he, he states that? We are to love Him with all our heart and all our soul and all our might. When he says we are to love God with all our heart, We know that our heart is a physical organ in our body that pumps blood through our body and keeps us alive. In English, we often use the word heart to refer to our emotions. So I love you with all my heart. But in Hebrew, the word heart had a far greater meaning. It meant more than just our emotions. One Jewish scholar writes that in Hebrew, the word heart represents, quote, the very essence of a person the persona, the very core of a human. It is one's entire inner being, end of quote. In other words, the word heart here in Hebrew represents our mind. It represents our emotions. It represents our will. And then we are to love God with all our soul. There's obviously some overlap here between heart and soul. But one respected Hebrew dictionary says that the word used here for soul, refers to, quote, the center and transmitter of feelings and perceptions. It goes on to say that it can refer to our longing, our desire, our morale, our feeling, our taste, our intent, our volition. Another Hebrew dictionary states that this word refers to our, quote, seat of emotions and passions, that it can relate to our mental acts as well as the acts of our will. So in both of, these, both of these ways, we are to love God with all our heart. We are to love God with all of our soul. There's, there's a sense of totality, right? We are to love God with all that we are, with our minds, with our emotions, with our wills, with our desires, with our longings, with our volition, with our intents. We are to love God with all that we are. And then notice he goes on to say, and you are to love God with all your might, So we might think here of our body, right? So we said heart, we said soul, we might think might. Well, now maybe he's referring to our bodies, our physicality. And it is true we are to love God with all of our physical bodies. But actually this word here, might, is most often translated as an adverb in Hebrew. And this is interesting. So this word might is most often translated as very or exceedingly. So if something is very good, it means that it's a goodness that's got might behind it. It's got strength behind it. 
And what the author here, what Moses is saying here, is that if we are to love God, we are to love Him with all our might. We are to love Him, as one author says, with all our variness and muchness. We are to love Him exceedingly. We are to love Him with vigor and love Him with force. We are to love Him with all that we are. We are to love Him with all our heart and all our soul and all our might. Do you know that this is how the great King Josiah is described in the Bible? Some of you here this morning, especially young people, you may have been named after Josiah. Josiah was a great king in the Old Testament who brought about radical reforms across the nation, returning the people of God to the worship of God and to God's Word. And the author of Kings describes Josiah this way, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Isn't that beautiful? Josiah loved the Lord with all that he was. His love for God was total. It was complete. It was undivided. May God in His mercy grant us such a love. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if that was the description of our own lives by the grace of God. So not only is this love to be total, though, it is to be singular. It is a singular love. Now this is interesting because the structure of Deuteronomy is, um, is very interesting. So in the chapter that we, just before Deuteronomy chapter 6, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, what we have is Moses presents the people of God with the Ten Commandments. And actually, the rest of the book of Deuteronomy is an unpacking of the Ten Commandments. So we could go through the book, and we don't have time this morning to do that, but we could go through the book and show how the rest of the book is the unpacking of the Ten Commandments. And so what happens is in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses presents the Ten Commandments, and then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, through 11, the focus in these chapters is unpacking the first two commandments, okay? The first two of the Ten Commandments. So turn back to chapter 5 and look there in verse 1, and we'll look at the first two commandments. Chapter 5, verse 1, and Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Now with our father, not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." 
So what are the first two commandments? The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is like it in many ways. You shall not make for yourself a carved image and bow down to them and serve them. So these are the first two commandments. Now, notice in chapter 6 the parallels between the first two commandments and what Moses says in chapter 6. We notice these parallels, first of all, in the Shema itself. So the Ten Commandments begin in chapter 5 with this call to attention. They begin with, Hear, O Israel. And of course, this call to attention is repeated in the Shema. Shema, hear, O Israel. And then in the prologue to the Ten Commandments, so the bit there that comes just before the Ten Commandments, Moses goes on to say, The Lord, Yahweh, our God, made a covenant with us at Horeb. So that's in chapter 5, verse 2. Moses says, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, made a covenant with us at Horeb. So Moses is declaring Yahweh is our God. He made a covenant with us. And then this is repeated in the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And then the first two commandments prohibit Israel from worshiping or serving or giving their devotion to any other god. And then the Shema requires this same exclusive singular devotion. What the first two commandments state negatively, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, the Shema states positively, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might so that there is no love, there is no devotion left over for any other god but it is all given to me. It is all given to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. So the Shema in many ways is a restating of the first two commandments. And then notice in chapter 6 as we go further down in the chapter that this theme emerges again and the first two commandments become the focus. So look there in verse 13. In verse 13 of chapter 6 we read, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And by His name you shall swear. Now this is very interesting because in Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something in a sentence, you front load it. In other words, you put it at the beginning of the sentence. And here, I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, Here, the ESV follows very closely with the Hebrew. So that the word order here in verse 13 stresses the importance of the absolute allegiance and fidelity to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. So in English, normal word order is subject, verb, object. Subject, verb, object. So if we were translating this verse, verse 13, and we wanted it to read smoothly in English, we might translate it, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him, and you shall swear by His name. But that's not actually how the verse reads, is it? The verse reads, the Lord your God you shall fear, 
Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. Emphasizing, stressing the importance of absolute fidelity and allegiance to Yahweh. We shall fear Him. Fear is a reoccurring theme in Deuteronomy. Actually, last week, we, or a couple of weeks ago, we stated that to fear the Lord does not mean to live in terror of God, but rather it means to live before the Lord with a disposition of reverence and honor. We are also to serve the Lord. Today is Juneteenth. It's a day that has been set aside as a holiday to commemorate the end of slavery in the United States. And the word here, serve, in our text is the word avad. It's actually the same word that's used in chapter 6, verse 12, where we read, the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That word slavery is actually the word avad. So you see the comparison here. It was a burden. It was a hardship. It was a sorrow to be a slave in Egypt. And it is a burden. It is a hardship. It is a sorrow to be a slave to sin. But, oh, it is a privilege. It is a joy. It is an honor to serve Yahweh. We are to fear Him. We are to serve Him. We are to swear by His name. This is a statement of fidelity, a statement of allegiance, a statement of commitment. So, for example, this morning we're going to have the joy of celebrating a baptism And in Christian baptism, we baptize someone in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this means, at least in part, when we are baptized into His name, that we swear our fidelity, our allegiance, our commitment to the triune God of the Bible. Now, notice in verse 14, so that's verse 13, Him you shall fear, Him you shall serve. Him you shall swear by His name. Now look at verse 14. In verse 14, the first commandment is explicitly repeated. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. And then in verse 15, reflecting the second commandment, it picks up on the theme of God's jealousy. You remember in the second commandment, you shall not make any other, uh, you shall not make a graven image and bow down to it, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. And look here in verse 15 of chapter 6. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. So here we see in Deuteronomy chapter 5, in the first two commandments, Also in the Shema, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, as well as in the rest of Deuteronomy chapter 6, that we are called to a singular love and a singular devotion to God. No other gods before you. Love the Lord and Him alone. Third, it's a total love. It's a singular love. It's also a practical love. So this love we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is not to be merely theoretical, but it must be played out. It must be evidenced in real life. It must be demonstrated in very practical ways. 
So look there in verses 16 through 19, and we see here that this love that we are to have for God does not test God, but rather it trusts God and obeys His commandments. Look there in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. Now, Massa here is a reference to Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. And this is when the people of God were in the wilderness, and they were without water. And so they began to quarrel against Moses. In fact, they were so upset that Moses was fearful that they might stone him. And so Moses goes to the Lord and prays that the Lord would provide for them. And the Lord does. They are insisting that God provide them with water in that moment. And God in His grace miraculously provides the people with water. And then Moses goes on to call that place Masa. And Masa translated means test. Because it was here that they tested the Lord. And it seems that the people tested God by imposing certain demands, requirements upon God. And insisting that if He did not meet those demands, then they would not trust Him. And they would not obey him. Do you know that Jesus faced a similar temptation in the wilderness? When he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan led Jesus up to the top of the temple. And Satan said to Jesus, he challenged him there, throw yourself off this temple, and if you are the Son of God, then God will send angels to protect you and to hold you up. Essentially, Satan was tempting Jesus to test his father. Essentially, what, Jesus was, what Satan was saying to Jesus was, you've been out here for 40 days and 40 nights with no food, with no water. You've been faithful to God. But where is God? Where is God in your time of need? If He really loves you, let Him prove it to you. Throw yourself off this temple. And you'll find out the true nature of His love. Test Him and see. And do you know how Jesus responded? He cited Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus says, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, Jesus did not demand of God that He prove His love through performing certain miraculous signs and wonders. Rather than test God's love, what we see here is that Jesus, in contrast to the people of Israel at Massa, He trusts in God's love. Because just before Jesus had entered into the wilderness, Jesus had actually been baptized by John the Baptist. And you remember when Jesus was baptized, a voice came from heaven and the Father pronounced over Jesus His love, This is my beloved Son, the Son of my love, with whom I am well pleased. And so when Jesus was in the wilderness, rather than demanding that God prove His love, Jesus trusted the Word of His Father. He trusted the heart of His Father. Jesus trusted and rested in the love of His Father. And oh, my friends, do you realize that if you're a Christian this morning, God has spoken a similar word of love over you and over me. He loves us so much 
that He sent His own Son to die for us that we might be redeemed and we might be saved. And we should not test His love. We should not demand that He prove His love by miraculous signs or events. We do not have to test His love. Rather, we can trust in His Word and we can rest in the promise of His love. Moses goes on to indicate that the opposite of testing God is trusting God and obeying Him. Look there in verses 16 and 17. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. Verse 17, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. Deuteronomy often speaks of the relationship between love and obedience. In fact, in Deuteronomy, the two are almost synonymous with one another. To love God is to obey Him. And this further demonstrates that love is not just an emotion. But love must be demonstrated in practical actions. Just as the Lord Jesus taught us, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So this is the Shema. One God and therefore one love. One God, and therefore one wholehearted, all-consuming devotion. I said earlier that the Shema is foundational to Old Testament faith. So much so that even today, observant Jews will cite it at least twice a day. But if you still doubt the importance of the Shema to biblical faith... Consider the words of Jesus. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And do you know how Jesus responded? He cited the Shema. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And why is it the great and first commandment? Well, because if you obey this commandment, you will obey all the commandments, right? If we truly love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, then all the other commandments will come easily. But our problem is Israel's problem. We cannot keep the great and first commandment as we ought because our hearts are sinful. This is actually the great dilemma in the book of Deuteronomy. After God revealed the Ten Commandments to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the people respond by saying, this is great! These are wonderful commandments. This is right and good, and we will do them. Lord, just tell us what we should do, and we will do it. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29 the Lord says, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. And then we turn from chapter 5, we go into chapter 6, and we see again this demand that we are to love the Lord with all our hearts. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
But over the course of time, Israel's defective, evil heart is exposed, like it was at Massa. So in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4, Moses bemoans the state of Israel's heart. There we read, Moses says to the people, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. You see, this is the problem. In order to fulfill the great and first commandment, we need a new heart because our hearts are sinful. And so Deuteronomy actually concludes by revealing the solution to this great dilemma. Deuteronomy concludes with a promise. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, we read, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This is what we desperately need. We cannot affect our hearts in such a way that we in our own strength and in our own power will love God as we ought. We need God to intervene and to do something that we ourselves cannot do. And this is the promise of Deuteronomy. This is the key to fulfilling the great and first commandment. This is the promise of the new covenant. That God will give His people a new heart to love Him and to obey Him. And do you know that Jesus made good on this promise? On the night before He was crucified, Jesus raised His cup in the presence of His disciples. And He said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. In other words, what Jesus is saying is I'm going to go to the cross and I will shed my blood. And in shedding my blood, I will secure for you all the promises of the new covenant. I will secure for you the forgiveness of sins. And I will secure for you the promise of a new heart. This is the promise of the gospel. That by God's grace... Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, with a new heart that is granted to us by grace, we are enabled to love and obey God, not perfectly in this life, but sincerely, authentically, faithfully. So that even though we sin in this life, there is clearly evidence of transformation. There's clearly evidence of a new heart that genuinely desires, longs for God, is devoted to Him and His commandments and His ways. So that by God's grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus, with a new heart that has been granted to us by grace, we might increasingly be devoted to God in love more and more and more each day as we walk with Him. Let me ask you 
this morning, have you experienced the promise of the new covenant? Have you, by God's grace, received a new heart through faith in Jesus Christ? If not, let me encourage you this morning to turn to God in faith. Turn from your sins. Confess your sins. Trust in the Lord Jesus, and He will forgive your sins, and He will grant you a new heart that you might love Him and obey Him and follow Him. And if you are a Christian this morning, and you have received the promise of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins and a new heart, then let us pray that God would work in our hearts increasingly, more and more, every day, so that we might love Him and be devoted to Him all the more. That we might love Him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we confess this morning that You are God and You alone And therefore, you are worthy of all our love and all our affection and all our devotion. Oh God, would you grant to us the gift of a new heart by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? And Lord, would you work in our hearts in such a way by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might love you and be devoted to you more and more each day. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.